0: Right. good morning everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. Merry Christmas and we are wishing everyone a Happy New Year. Uh, This morning we're going to be doing our Christmas service uh, entitled Glad Tidings of Great Joy. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Just so you know, all of our teachings are archived on our website at LighthouseDiscipleship.org as well as our YouTube channel, Lighthouse Discipleship Center and uh and we also want to say thank you to all those who have supported us with their tithes and with their offerings and in case you want to know how you can do so you can simply go to our website at lighthousediscipleship.org go to our give page and you can give anywhere from all over the world if you'd rather send us a check you can make your checks payable to lighthouse discipleship center go on the footer of every page and you will find our mailing address there Okay, if you're in the United States, just so you know that your tax donations and contributions to our church are tax deductible, as we are a five hundred and one c 3 And just so you know, uh, because we are ending the year, uh, I think Friday is New Year's Eve, so by 11.59pm on uh, Friday, New Year's Eve, will be the last time you can uh, contribute to the 2021 tax year. That's minor info, but at the same point in time for those of you who are curious, uh, that information is there. Uh, regarding our Bible studies, we have taken a short recess. Uh, we have we will resume on January the Not We won't be having Bible study tonight, and we won't be having Bible study next Sunday night, uh, January 2nd, but we will resume on January the 9th. We'll resume our Wednesday night Bible study on Sunday night, which is the Believer's Authority. We are taking a break from our Wednesday night, just for a little longer time, we just, Sherry and I, we just were very busy. We were burning the candle at both ends and we just need a little bit of a break here uh, until we can get some kind of sanity into our schedule and we have some uh, break. But we're gonna resume our Bible study starting January 9th, okay? And so we'll pick up back there. And then we'll have some more stuff coming forward as the year begins to evolve and and we get get, uh, into the year. So anyway, uh, this morning we're going to be doing our Christmas message. I know a lot of churches do their Christmas message last Sunday before Christmas, and that's that's pretty uh, common. And uh, I'm maybe a little uncommon here, but uh, that's okay. Uh, I decided to do mine today uh, for multiple reasons. One, I wanted to finish a series that I finished last week, and then I uh, today's right after Christmas, so I thought it would be no harm, no foul there. And then next week we're going to start a news series to talk about the symptoms of a hard heart. And we'll talk more about that at the end of this message as well as next week. Okay, and so anyway, uh, i got to talk about glad tidings of great joy. That's the title of my message this morning. And I believe this morning's message will be a little shorter than normal, perhaps, just because I don't have a lot of info on here. But uh, what I do have, I believe it will be good. And so uh, we're just going to dive right into that. So we're talking about, the, it's a Christmas message, and uh, it's a, it's a, I titled it, the Glad Tidings of Great Joy. Now before I go into a lot of detail, I'm going to explain some things I've explained really the last several years on Christmas, I, I'm not trying to say the same message just with a different title every week, every year for Christmas, but there's so many elements of the Christmas story that are so powerful that I can I, 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 him we, you can easily overlook it through some of the traditional uh, things that we come, we, we bring out or the nativity scene and the, the Christmas story. And I'm not necessarily downplaying some of those things. It just I like bringing some clarity to where Scripture talks about those things. And I just I'll explain more of this as I go forward. But I just love this uh, because it brings all the Old and New Testament together. It brings all Scripture. That Jesus said in John five thirty nine. You search the scriptures for they testify of me. It says what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scriptures profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, though the men of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good way. It goes with Jesus when he talked to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. And he began to expound on all the scriptures concerning himself. <coughs> to me. This Christmas story brings alive even the Old Testament and how it began to, how it has in so many ways to expound on all the scriptures concerning Jesus our Lord and our Savior. And so really the tail end of this message starts the conclusion of this message is really the main point I want to get into. So I'm going to say the, the best wine for last in, in, in that sense and we're going to go through and we're going to look at many elements of the Christmas story. I've shared these things many times in years past. Some of you have not heard those things. I have not been able to share it on PowerPoint in recent years. So now that we have PowerPoint, I can share it in a little more uh, better fashion uh, than I believe I can by just telling you because there's some facts here uh, that are just worth telling. Okay, so we're gonna pick up our story this morning from Luke chapter two. And uh, Luke, Luke gives us probably the most detailed uh, version of the Christmas story. Uh, Matthew shines some light on it. Mark just jumps right into Jesus' ministry, and John comes from a different book as well. So, we get a lot more from Luke regarding the, with the Christmas story. And uh, so, we get some things from Matthew, and we'll perhaps refer to a few of those things. Uh, but uh, we're going to pick up from Luke chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up really where the, the angels begin to declare the birth of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ to the shepherds, okay? And we're going to pick up in verse 8, Luke chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me, verse 8, <coughs> excuse me one second, and it says here, sorry, my PowerPoint's getting a little fuzzy this morning, now that we're in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you great tidings of great joy. There is a title of our message, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We'll come back to verse 10 or 11 in a minute. Verse 12. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe <coughs> excuse me, wrapped in a swaddling cloth lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, or singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards man. Verse 14 is where we spend a lot of times uh, each year and talk about the Christmas story. But, like I said, and I've done this before many times in the last few years, um, I'm going to go through many elements of the Christmas story. I did this last year, I did it the year before, but I'm going to go through it again, and then the tail end is going to be different than what I normally do because I want to focus on some things here in a moment. I want to go back real quick. I want to get back to this verse eventually, uh, verses 10 and 11, before I go into some more detail. And then the angel said to them, the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you great tidings of great joy, or glad tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day, in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. (coughs) We're going to come back to this verse, which is really my main verse for this, which this teaching this morning. But I want to go fast forward to... Uh, talking about many elements. And since we're at the shepherd's scene, let's talk about the shepherds first. Okay? Now I don't believe these were just any ordinary shepherds. Okay? As many may may even think. And again I'm gonna be tackling some maybe traditional thoughts and some in some parts of our teaching this morning. And when I tackle those, I'm not judging any of that. You know, most of us don't know this. Don't know some of the details I'm going to go into on in some of these things, and so that's okay. Okay, the main message is Jesus is born. Jesus came and Jesus died for our sins. That's the main message. Okay, these little details are not the main message, but to me they make the the main message more beautiful. They make the they bring out the Old Testament in such a beautiful fashion that. Connects the two together The Old Testament is Christ concealed where the New Testament is Christ revealed But Jesus said you search the scriptures for they testify of me and I believe and Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus with his two disciples after his resurrection Began to expound on the scriptures concerning himself. We're not going to search all the scriptures We don't have time today. Okay, we would it would take the whole year to do that but at the same point in time we're going to extract several parts of the Christmas story and look at some details, and then we're going to bring this all together to my main message this morning. So let's look at the priestly shepherds first. <coughs> priestly shepherds. What do I mean by priestly shepherds? Okay. In Bethlehem, or near Bethlehem, there were priestly shepherds. And these priestly shepherds began to, were the ones that began to separate the lambs for the sacrificial lambs. They have sacrificial lambs, not only for the Passover lamb, but for the burnt offerings. They had to do pr- two burnt offerings every day. Every morning and every evening, there was a burnt offering. And every year, there was atonement for the sins. Uh, That's what we call the Passover lamb. Okay? So the sacrificial lamb includes. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. My PowerPoint's messing up a little bit this morning. There was burnt offerings, the male lambs. There was Peace Offerings, we don't talk about that very often, but it was Peace Offerings to the Females. And then there was Daniel Passover, okay? So let's talk about this Burn offering just for a moment, okay? I'm not going to go too deep with this, but I want to I want to expound on a few things here this morning. With the uh, Burn Offerings, okay, it talks about the Sacrificial Lands. We're not going to go to these scriptures, but in Numbers Chapter 28 and also Exodus Chapter 29, it talks about the the the, the, the sacrificial lamps, and when you read the scriptures in these two passages, you will find that they had to have a burnt offering every morning at the third hour, and every evening. And we see this also. This connects with the cross because in Mark fifteen, it says, "Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him." Jesus was crucified on the third hour, which goes goes with the. Was good with the burnt offering that was supposed to be performed on the third hour every day. (coughs) When I see these type of connections, everything Jesus brings out on the cross, even the third hour, when we read these things in the book of Numbers and the Exodus, the law, the Torah, it makes me appreciate the Torah all the more. God didn't just have laws. For them to have a sacrificial lamb on the third hour every morning just for nothing. God doesn't do nothing. God always has a purpose for everything he does. Including the third hour, which would point to Jesus being sacrificed for our sins on the third hour. And then also on the every evening on the ninth hour, they also have to have a sacrificial lamb. This also goes with Mark chapter 15. Excuse me one second. In Mark 15, we see that, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi Lama Sabachotai, I can't pronounce that, and which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah, verse 36. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. So the burnt offering, they had to have a burnt offering at the third hour every day. And on the ninth hour every day, Jesus was crucified on the third hour. And he gave up his last breath on the ninth hour. And so, and so that tells you six hours he was on the cross. Okay, but same point in time. We're not going into all that detail right now. We'll talk about that more around Easter time. But at the same point in time, what we're talking about right now is that I just love the scriptures. That the, Even the Old Testament, the burnt offering, which represents Jesus giving us his righteousness, was all done done on the third and ninth hour, which Jesus died in the third hour, was crucified on the third, third hour and gave his last breath on the ninth hour. I just love how scripture interprets scripture. Okay? So let's switch gears here. We talked about the priests, the priestly and shepherds. We'll come back to some of that. But let's talk about the tower of the flock. That might be a term to those that have not heard before. Where do we get this term, tower of the flock? We get this from Micah. Micah chapter 4, verse 8, and it says this, And you, O tower of the flock, <coughs> the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you you shall to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. There's a lot here. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with what Mike is saying here. But let's talk about this Tower of the Flock. This Tower of the Flock in Hebrew means, it's actually Miguel Eder. I felt like I'm going of the rings here. Miguel Eder. But anyway, it means Tower of the Flock. Okay. And so it's a station where priestly shepherds brought their flocks destined for sacrifice. There were many places where, where they have stuff like this, but there was a specific station in Bethlehem called Miguel Eder, which is interpreted tower of the flock, where not just any shepherds, but priestly shepherds brought their flocks destined for sacrifice. That's awesome. Okay, Because this is where Jesus is born. Jesus is not just born anywhere. You know, I've always asked the question growing up why the shepherds? Why did the angels come to the shepherds? And we're going to see in this teaching this morning the angels didn't just come to any shepherds, they came to specific shepherds that, were, that brought their flocks destined for sacrifice. And Jesus, was, we're going to find out in a moment, that Jesus was born in Bighal-Ether, the town of the flock. Okay? And if, in case you want to know what Miguel Ether looks like, this is what it looks like. I know it's a little blurred, okay, because I had to blow it up so you can see it. But at the same point in time, it was not some farm stable, okay. I know a lot of our nativity scenes have a farm scene there, okay. Okay, this was not Anna Green Gables, okay. This was Miguel Ether the Tower of the Flock. This is where they sacrifice lambs destined for sacrifice, okay. There's another picture of it, okay? And so, I know this doesn't sound awesome, but this is what happened. This is where it took place. We'll come back to the Tower of the Flock in just a moment. But this Tower of Flock, again, it's Miguel Adder. It's a station where and shepherds brought their flocks, destined for sacrifice. And in the lower level was the birthing room. And once birthed, they were placed in a manger. Okay? And, and so let's talk about this manger the manger okay the manger again it wasn't some wooden straw a nice little cozy little thing of course they it was a it was it basically it was a hewn depression of limestone rock it looked something like this now that doesn't look very cozy to me keep in mind they could not allow these priestly lamps to be injured if they were injured, they would, they could not be sacrificed as, for as a burnt offering or as a passover lamb. These had to be spotless, without blemish, without without any any blemish at all. And so, uh, but this was a manger, okay. And they were also wrapped in swaddling cloths. This was normal. They would wrap a lamb destined for sacrifice so it would not injure itself, and they would call swaddling cloths. So we kind of romanticize the manger scene a little bit. And I'm okay with that to the certain extent. I know that's not necessarily accurate. But, but the point is, again, Jesus is born. Jesus came to die for us sin. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to split hairs on the nativity scene, on the different elements of it. But, but also, because I do know the truth, because I do know what it looks like, and for, at least from pictures and from scripture, It it makes me appreciate the nativity scene even all the more. Okay? Am I making sense? I don't know if I'm making sense. Okay? But it was used to subdue animals prior to sacrifice. Why? For inspection. So they could inspect them, so they also would not be injured. Okay? Restrained them. A sacrifice had to be bound to be valid. We see this when Abraham offered up Isaac, he had to bound his son. it, 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 it had to be bound. That was also part of the law. You'll see this, uh, and more, and I put an example of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. We're not going to go into all that detail. Okay? So, well, I want to go to Luke chapter 2, real quick, verse 11, but I'm going to look at the Young's Literal Translation. And it wasn't just any manger, there was a specific manger that uh, Young's Literal brings out. Because it was born to you, Today, the Savior is Christ the Lord in the city of David, and this is to you the sign. You shall find a babe wrapped lying in the manger. I like Young's literal, I use it a lot in my own personal study because it's a literal translation. We have so many different translations, but this one's a literal translation. And when you get a literal translation, it doesn't sometimes always make it, the, the sentences don't always flow beautifully like they do in our English language. But it's literal, and from the literal translation, you'll find this also in the Greek, that it wasn't just a manger, it was the manger, a definite oracle. There was a very specific manger where Jesus was born. It wasn't just, it, there were many mangers, but there was one specific manger where lambs that were destined for the, as a Passover lamb were born and inspected, wrapped in swaddling cloths to be inspected to see if they were, they could be even approved to be a sacrificial lamb. If there was any blemish, they couldn't sacrifice a lamb. Okay, the lamb got to live a full life, okay, instead of of being sacrificed for atonement for for sins. But it was a specific nature. So, hopefully you're seeing one thing here that I'm trying to draw out here at the beginning, is that these priestly shepherds That the angels came to announce the birth of our Savior, these priests and shepherds would know precisely where to go. They knew. That's what they did. They, this was their livelihood. This was their purpose and their destiny to inspect lambs destined for sacrifice. And when the angels came to announce that Jesus was born in the manger, they didn't just I wonder where, where, we don't know where to go. They didn't have to follow a star. They knew where to go because this is what they did. They were inspecting lambs in the manger all the time. They were watching sheep, lambs on the field that most likely were already inspected in the manger when they were born. They knew where to go. I just, I don't know about you, but I just love that. God doesn't do something for nothing. He didn't just go to humble shepherds because they were the most humble people. And I'm okay with that to a certain degree. But he went to them because the first ones who knew of any lamb being born that was destined for sacrifice was born in this manger. Every lamb that was destined to sacrifice when it was born was birthed in this manger. And here's Jesus. When he comes as our Emmanuel, as our Savior, as our King, He is born precisely in the same place God has ordained through the law where He was supposed to be born. That's awesome. That makes me appreciate the law all the more. All this Levitical laws of sacrifice and rituals, it wasn't just rituals for God to make, make can I set it, do it this way? No, God was to all the Levitical sacrifices and all the rituals and all the laws and, and the ordinances, and the, and the, and the, um, that I can, to for the priestly shepherds to follow, was all prophecy of how Jesus was going to be born. I love that. Okay? And in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day, <coughs> John saw, and we're talking about John the Baptist here in the book of John, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John's testimony. 33, 33, 33 and a half years later, 30 and a half years later, excuse me, I'll take it back. 30 years later, Jesus lived 33 and a half years. He had three and a half years of ministry. We're going to get into that in just a moment. But when he was 30, when Jesus got baptized, he saw. Jesus, and he began to say, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." I can almost imagine these priestly shepherds when they saw Jesus in that manger in Miguel Ether, the tower, of the flock. They're like they're almost the same response: "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." I don't know about you, but I, I they had to connect some dots to that, okay? Because they were doing everything they were doing was prophetic about this Jesus, the Messiah. Who was coming, and here was the Messiah born in the exact same danger. It, it made it had to make them appreciate what they were doing every day, year in and year out. Okay, now let's switch the gears a little bit. Let's talk about Mary and Joseph for a moment. Let's go back to Micah real quick Micah chapter 4. It says, And you, old tower of flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, <coughs> excuse me, to you shall come. Even the former dominion shall come to the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. I believe it's talking a lot about Mary right here. Okay. That's my opinion. Okay. You can take it or leave it. Okay. Opinions. Opinions are like noses. They usually have a couple holes in it. Okay. But everyone has one. Everyone has a nose. Everyone has a couple holes in their noses. Everyone's opinion can have a couple holes in it. Okay. So. I believe it's the daughter of Zion. And I can bring this out a lot, too, because we're going to find out in a minute, Bethlehem was the hometown of Mary's great-great-great-great-grandfather, Boaz. Okay? So we're going to find out a little bit later. Okay? So, see, both Mary and Joseph, though, were descendants of Boaz. I just, I just said that. Okay? I'm not going to go all these scriptures, but you can read it in the Chronicles, We can read it in Matthew, and the geology. You can also see in 2 Samuel where there's a geology. These are all geologies. And you can find that Mary came from not only Mary, but you can also find Joseph too, came from the descendants of Boaz. Boaz was great, the great-grandfather of David. Okay, now we're going to bring some of this back into the equation later, but let's look at, look at a few details for now. David's sons, Solomon, and if we, if we were to, to peel back the onion all the way, we would find out Joseph came from Solomon, okay? Joseph's father was Jacob. That was his, his, his father's name. We can find this in the geology in Matthew. But Mary came from Nathan, David's son, Nathan. I'm not talking about the prophet Nathan. I'm talking about the, the, his son Nathan. Mary's father was Eli, and you can find all this in Luke. And you can find the geology goes all the way back to Nathan. Both genealogies, and David goes all the way back, because Boaz was, was David's great-grandfather. Okay? And so then you take the genealogy from Solomon, all the way to, jo- to Jacob, to Joseph, and you take David's genealogy from Nathan to Eli, all the way to, Ma- uh, to Mary, okay? This is not a major detail, but this is just some fun facts, in case you're interested. We're going to come back to some of Mary and Joseph, and in London, but let's look at Bethlehem real quick. Okay. Bethlehem was an ancestral home. And we find this in, in Numbers 27, the, the points of that. But we also find out that when a daughter is the only heir of the father, then she can, she can own her father's possessions. And we don't, and if she marries within her own tribe. So there are con- some conditions within the law that if the daughter is the only heir then she can own her father's possession if she marries within her own tribe. Okay? Why all this restraint? Why all these laws? Well, all this, all this makes a pathway for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, in the Galilee, in the manger. Okay? And so, there's, and there's no mention of Mary having brothers. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. We don't know, but there's no, there's no evidence of that. Okay? Joseph... And by law, if you read the law, read the Torah, Joseph became Eli. Who's Eli? Mary's father. Joseph became Eli's heir by marriage. Were they married yet? No, but they were bequeathed. And being bequeathed in Jewish law was very serious. It was like a divorce if you broke up. Okay, and so it was very serious. We don't. We 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 just take off the ring, engage the engagement ring, break it off, and we're done. Okay. Not so in the Jewish custom. Okay. There's also a little foot there with this ancestral home. Boaz owned a home in Bethlehem. Take this all the way back to the book of Ruth, and you'll find that Boaz owned a home there with a the threshing floor. That's where Ruth, met Boaz. Okay? You always wonder why the, the, the story of Ruth is in the Bible? Well, it all point back to Jesus. Okay? And so it, handed, it was handed down through the generations. All the way down to Joseph and Mary. Okay? And, and through the lineage of David. Okay? But then Caesar Augustus had a census. And this census required everyone to go to their ancestral home. Where was that for well, Mary and Joseph? Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because that's where the Tower of the Flock is. Ger- Mary and Joseph may not have connected the dots, but God connected the dots and I believe God put it on Caesar and Augustus' heart to have a census, and he wrote all the stuff in the law so that Mary and Joseph one day would go back to Bethlehem so Jesus was born in Miguel Ether, the tower of the flock, in the manger. God orchestrated all these laws so that Jesus could be born in a very specific, precise location that all pointed to Behold the Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. That's awesome. I mean, that doesn't get you excited, your wood is wet, okay? And I'm not saying that to be mean, I'm just saying that to be funny. Everyone had had to return to their place of origin, and they found themselves, Mary and Joseph, in Bethlehem, the sacrificial birthplace of every lamb that was destined for sacrifice, the Tower of the Flock, which is also known as Miguel Edith. Micah, of comes in the clear picture, and you will tower the flock. Bethlehem, Miguel Adder, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Who's Jerusalem? Who's Zion? God's people, his church, his bride. So let's talk about this guest chamber, which we call the inn. There was no place for them in the end. Let's, let's look at verse, Luke chapter 2 real quick again here. Verse 7. We started with verse 8. Let's go back to verse 7. And she, Mary, bought her firstborn son, Jesus, and wrapped him in swallowing cloths and laid him in, it's actually a dumb manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. When the Bible was translated from Greek or Aramaic to English, we get the word in. But it's not in. in the Greek means guest chamber. Okay? Let's go back to Young's literal translation once again. We've been there before. And she married brought forth her son Jesus the firstborn and wrapped him up and laid him in the manger, the word the again, because there was no room for them in a place for them a place in the Guest chamber. It wasn't just an inn. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't uh, Marriott. Okay. It wasn't even Motel Six. It was a guest chamber. Okay. But there was no room for them in the guest chamber. They didn't stay in the guest chamber. There was no room for them. Why? Why was the guest chamber? Everyone was going home. Okay. But we're gonna find out. There's more to it than just that. Okay. Let's go back to. Let's go to verse eleven real quick. And ye shall say to the master of the house, this is when Jesus was going to be crucified, he's going to have the last Passover with the disciples. And he told the disciples to go find a place to have the Last Supper. He said, Ye shall say to the master of the house, the teacher said to thee, Where is the guest chamber where the Passover with the disciples I may eat? We find this also, that's in Luke. We find it also in Mark. And wherever you may go in, say to the master of the house, the teacher said, Where is the guest chamber with the Passover? My only point bringing this out that the word "guest chamber" was used three times in Scripture, all referring to Jesus. Okay, I'm, I'm, there's not a lot of point I'm going to bring bring out of these two passages of Mark and, and Luke, but there's also another aspect of this guest chamber and where why Mary was born. See, the census brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem because there were, and it would have brought them to the guest chamber because everyone else was there. But it wasn't so much that there was not room for them, even though that was true. Because the scripture says there wasn't any room. Okay? But there's also another aspect of the law that caused Mary and Joseph to find themselves in Miguel ever not the guest chamber. Okay? I mean, today, if we had a pregnant woman coming and our house was full, sorry guys, the pregnant woman gets the house. You get the you get the garage outside. We, that's the way we would do it. But the law says, someone who's pregnant, someone who's giving birth, is ceremonially unclean. And we're like, how rude! I mean, if anyone needs the house, it's the one who's giving birth. Okay? But anyone who has an issue of blood in Leviticus 15 is unclean, and they have to be without the camp. And someone who's having childbirth, blood loss, is also unclean. It has to be out of the camp. They could not get birth in the commonplace. That was against the law. And we think, how rude. Some of us may think that, especially some of you ladies. Okay? <coughs> but again, sorry, my PowerPoint's going a little slow. There's no scriptural evidence of this being an animal stable that they went to. Where did they go? They couldn't go in the inn, they had to be outside the camp. Boaz had a threshing floor. I don't know if this threshing floor was Miguel Eder, but they found themselves in Miguel Eder, the tower of the flock, which would have been in that region. Boaz was very rich in the the story of Ruth. I mean, he owned a lot of land there. And I don't know for sure that Miguel Eder is part of the threshing floor. It would not surprise me if it was. That it turned to be because the book of, you know, anyway, I, I don't want to get my foot in my mouth here. But at some point in time, you know, I don't know about you, but I've seen scripture just align itself. It, it, it wasn't by happenstance that it got them to her. I mean, the census got them to the region, to Bethlehem. There was no room in the, in the inn. Also, even if there was room in the inn, she couldn't give birth there. They would have violated scripture. That the whole community would have been unclean. I mean, everyone, the house would have been empty because everyone would have been without the house unclean. Okay, I go to Micah, though, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that's my best shot at it, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth. To to mean one to be ruler in Israel whose goings are from old and from everlasting. What is Bethlehem Ephraim? It's the ancient name for Bethlehem. Okay, It's Rachel's burial tomb that we find all the way back to Genesis 35. Now we're going even beyond Boaz. Now we're going to Rachel. And it was Rachel's burial tomb. Is Bethlehem Ephrathah, and let's go back real quick. Cause it says to Israel. Who's Israel? Jacob. Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. That's where the Israel got his name, Israel. And what does Israel mean? Prince. Okay. And we're gonna find we're gonna find out a little bit later when we uh, get there. Okay. And where is this ancient Bethlehem? It's just above the shepherd's field. Just above it. This shepherd's field, where these priestly shepherds were watching their flocks, destined for sacrifice, that's where, see, there's Bethlehem, there's modern Bethlehem, and then there's ancient Bethlehem. And ancient Bethlehem is where Miguel Ether is. Ancient Bethlehem is where Rachel's tomb is. Ancient Bethlehem is the city of David. Okay? Just above the shepherd's field. And it's northeast of modern Bethlehem. Okay? And today lies, lies the ruins of Bethlehem Ephathah. It's in ruins today. But it's where Rachel's tomb is. Okay? But Bethlehem Ephathah is Mary and Joseph's ancestral home. Okay? It's David's birthplace. And it's also the sacrificial birthplace of every sacrificial lamb that God instituted. Now let's, let's, let's come away from this story just for a moment. Let's go look at these wise men. Okay? We don't know those three, but we have, we know there was three gifts, and so we know there were at the least three. Let's go here. This is where Matthew comes into play instead of Luke. But in Matthew, chapter 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, the wise men, whether Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Now he's quoting from Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that we just read from. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd over my people Israel? Verse seven. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over the young child was, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced in exceedingly great joy, and when they had come into the house, he's not in Miguel Ether now, he's probably at least two years old, he's in the house now, they saw the young child, <coughs> with Mary, excuse me, typo here, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts, to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then, being divinely warned in the dream, they... That they should not return to Herod They departed for their own country another way. Now let's look at these wise men real quick. We have, we call them the Magi, because in the Greek, Magus means wise men. That's just Greek, okay? Magi is just a Greek word for wise men, okay? And they were from the East. It says where East, but it says the East. Okay? Now some people think these might be kings. They could have been kings. We don't know for sure that they were kings. Because there's some references in Isaiah and Psalms that that hint that they may be kings. We don't know that for sure, but uh, some people think that, and I I'm, I'm okay with people thinking that because there are some scriptures that kind of imply that they could have been. Okay. But let's let's when we're talking about the white man, let's think about real quick Daniel. Remember Daniel? Daniel was in a time where Jerusalem was siege and the king Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when he took over Jerusalem he was say kidnapped but he took the wise people. He took the best of the crop. Okay? See when when Babylon ex when Israel went into exile in the Babylonian exile, King Nebuchadnezzar deported—that's a better word—many upper class people, the best of the best. He took them. He said, "I want those in my kingdom. I want those serving me." I mean, if I, I'm not a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar, but if I conquer the land, I'm going to take the best of the best and let them be my servants, let them be my wise men, let them be my uh, counselors and whatnot. I mean, I don't know about you, but that just makes practical sense. Okay. Now I'm not a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar, so that book won't ever happen. But are you seeing the logic in that? Okay. And and among among those deported exiles were Daniel and the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We read all about that in the book of Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, was overtaken by Persia, and that's where we have the handwriting on the wall. That night Persia took over Babylon. Now eventually the Roman Empire took over Persia, but that doesn't fit our story. Okay? So but Persia Empire conquered Babylon Empire. <coughs> and who was among there? Daniel. That's where we have eventually the lion, Daniel and the Lion's end. That was the Persian king. Okay? Who was ruling over uh he. he He bought the exiles, and the Persian king's like, I'm going to keep these guys, you know? And so he kept the best of the best, okay? And the Persia, which is also modern-day Iran, is in the east compared to Jerusalem. If you get a world map and you have Jerusalem over here, or Israel, in the east is Iran, which is Persia, okay? Babylon... Who conquered is modern-day Iraq. It's also in the east. Iran and and Iraq are east of Israel. That's just uh, geography for you. Are you following me? Okay? Now, Daniel, if you read the book of Daniel, not only do you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the exile, Daniel and the lion's den, But Daniel, like John, the Apostle John, who had a lot of prophecies about end times, Daniel also had a lot of prophecies about end times. Daniel and John are probably our two most prophetic prophets, if you will, about end time events. Okay?
1: And Daniel
0: gives a timeline for the Messiah. When the Messiah would be born. Okay? And, again, remember... When Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, he took the upper class Jews. Daniel was not a Babylonian. He was a Jew. Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego were Jews. They were Hebrews. In captivity and exile in Babylon, which eventually became Persia. Both of those countries are in the east. We find some some people through Nehemiah went back to Israel, but not everyone did, okay? And why, and, and remember, remember uh, before I go there, we're talking about magi. We're talking about wise men. And Nebuchadnezzar took the wise men, took people who were upper class. They were, remember Daniel interpreting the dream? He was among the magicians and the, and the scholars and, and those who can interpret dreams and stuff like that. He, every king has a council. And Daniel was part of his council, if you will. Same thing for the Persian king. Okay, Darius, I believe his name was. But wise Hebrews in Persia studied prophecy, especially biblical prophecy. Okay, they were called the Torah keepers. Okay? They were knowledgeable of Daniel's writings. Why did Daniel wrote it? Why did he in Persia? Daniel wrote Daniel in Persia. And wise Hebrews who were in Persia would have studied of all the prophecies they would have studied in the Torah, they would have studied Daniel's writings above all. Are you following me so far? And Daniel gives the timeline for the Messiah. Okay? No one else would have cared to examine the scriptures. The Persians, the Babylonians, eventually the Romans, would never have cared about studying the Torah. About studying Daniel's writings. But Hebrews, who were in exile in Persia, would have. Okay? And we pick it up in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. There's a lot here. I'm not going to go into all this detail. But 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for your iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. He's talking about the Messiah. Verse 25. <coughs> Therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. We can find more about the building of the wall through Nehemiah. Ezra was also part of that, okay? And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not from himself, for for himself and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end shall be with the flood, and the end of the war, desolation, shall determined. There's a lot of prophecy here. I'm not going into that prophecy that we're talking about Christmas. Okay? And uh, uh, verse 27, let's uh, go one more time, one more verse. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many one many one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and then the wing of the abomination shall be on the who, Sorry, I'm missing some stuff here when I translated. even until the consumption would determine it's poured out on the desolate. There's a lot here. I'm missing some stuff. My, my typing was, was choppy. But my key we have wise men from Persia. They were exiled Jews who studied the scriptures, studied Daniel's writings above anyone else. I mean, even regular Jews, they would have access to Daniel's writings more than anyone else. And they studied them. And they traveled between 800 and 900 miles, determined to see the Messiah. Okay? Therefore, again, again understand that from going forth, and the command to restore, and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So, talk, Daniel's talking about the Messiah. There's some other things being taught here. I'm not going to go into that some of you would love me to go into right now. But I'm not going to. Okay. And in, back in Matthew, when these wise men were following this star, they said, where is he, Herod says, where is he who has been born a king of the Jews? For we have, seen, no, no, I'm sorry, the wise men come into Jerusalem area, or Bethlehem area, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east. Why? Because they were in the east. They saw it while they were in the east. And in a sense, it was in the west. Because they were in the east. They had to go west to Bethlehem is west of Persia. If they went east, they went all the way around the globe. They found America first. I don't think that happened. And have come to worship him. Okay? So they traveled a long mile. They didn't have train. They didn't have stagecoach. They rode on camels. Okay? Determined to see the Messiah. Only Hebrews would have been so determined to see their king. Regular Babylonians, Persians, Romans would not have been that determined to see their king. Okay? Let's talk about the star real quick. The star is spoken of of the children of Israel. You can read us in Genesis. You can read us in Exodus and Chronicles. The star is always spoken of in the Old Testament about the children of Israel. What does that have to do with us Christians? Well, Paul says that not everyone is uh, in Israel is of Israel. We are spiritual Israel. They were natural Israel. God loves both for a different reason. God made a covenant with Abraham, the Jews. God made a covenant. He's going to keep that covenant. God has made a covenant with us too, through Jesus Christ. He's going to keep that covenant. Okay? But we also pick up the story with Balaam. Who's Balaam? Okay? Balaam was hired by um, a wicked king. I think it's Balak. Who hired Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam was. He had, he, had a, he made a contract with him. He said, "I will prophesy, but I can only prophesy what comes out." He almost had a, a, a you know the fine line. I am not responsible for what comes out. And it, three times he tried to curse Israel, <coughs> because that's what he was hired to do. But he couldn't curse Israel; he could only bless them. Okay. There's some other things about Balaam that he but he also told Balak. I can't curse them, but I can tell you how he can they can curse themselves. And he taught them how. He told Balaam, "Bring some women, some ungodly women, seduce these men, to get them into morality, and they will be cursed themselves." And that's what happened. And so, and so. Uh, but anyway, let's keep it on the good side, okay? Balaam's prophecies. And one of Balaam's prophecies. Now, what where's Balaam? See the, the wise men were in the east, but where's Balaam? He's talking about the you guys talk about the star. Bethor is near the Euphrates River, which is near Persia. In the east. Okay, anyway. And he saw a star coming out of Jacob. Who's Jacob? Jacob is the husband of Rachel. Who's Rachel? Miguel and where Bethlehem, ancient Bethlehem is okay. What's Jacob's name mean? When well, it was changed to Israel, which means prince. And Miguel Eder is in Bethlehem, which is his wife's, his lo- beloved wife Rachel's tomb. Okay, uh, Rachel, Jacob, Israel means prince. Okay. In yeah. Numbers twenty four seventeen, we see. Part of one swore his prophecies. He says, I see him, Jesus, but not now. Behold, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A spectre, scepter shall ride out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Moab." The wise man, the Magi, says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship. Balaam saw a star too. Several hundred years before, these wise men from Persia, from the east. Balaam was in the east when you saw it. The wise men saw it from the east and they were from the east. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah. He's quoting from Micah 5 two. He says, For you shall come out the ruler who shall shepherd over my people, Israel. And when they had heard, heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced, it was an exceeding joy. And when they had come to the house, verse 11, see, so you know they're in the house now, they're not in the hill either. two years later, they saw the young child and Mary, his son, mother, and fell down to worship him when they had opened their treasures and presented gifts. To him, gold Francis and Mara, verse 16. And then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the districts from two years old and younger, and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled or was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Rama, lamentation, weeping. In great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they have no more. Why Rachel? Make and her with her, too. Okay. Let's switch gears here. Let's talk about the piece of time in this one moment. Okay. I'm rounding, I'm kind of rounding, uh, I'm between second and third base, rounding home here Just this moment. Jesus lived th- 33 and a half years. We know that. His ministry began at age 30. So he was in ministry for three and a half years. His ministry started at the baptism of John in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And some other uh, gospel writers also talk about the baptism of John. His ministry lasted three and a half years. Okay? During this three and a half years, Jesus ex- experienced four Passovers. Now, he experienced more than that because he lived three and a half years. Passover happened every year. But I'm going to highlight four different Passovers that Jesus experienced in this three-and-a-half-year period. Keep in mind, the Passover is in the spring. Okay? But his first Passover, excuse me, was approximately six months prior to the baptism of John. Okay? And we find this in these passages in the book of John, John chapter 1, chapter 2, we find the first Passover. When, Je- when John saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God and takes away the sin of the world, okay? And I can't go all that detail. I'm going to go through these four Passovers pretty quick. We see the second Passover in John chapter 5, the second Passover of his ministry time, that three-and-a-half-year period. John 5, 1. If, if, and if this is not a Passover, it's at least uh, the Feast of Weeks, which is seven weeks prior or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is six weeks after Passover. The key thing that we're going to see here is the Feast of Tabernacles is always six months after Passover. Passover is always in the spring. That means Feast of Tabernacles is always in the fall. OK, six months would be fall, OK? But if this passage in John is not the second Passover, then it's one of these two, OK? That's not so important, that's just something we're, we're noting. The third Passover is during feet of the 5,000. And we find that in John 6, 4. And also in, uh, uh, sorry, excuse me. John 6, 4, okay. The fourth Passover, the final Passover of Jesus, is the upper, the upper room. It's basically the cross. Okay? When he was... Crucified, we find this in John 11 and John 19. And again, it was in the spring. <coughs> I'm not going into a lot of detail, because that detail is not important for this message. But I do want you to follow the timeline. Okay, Jesus was crucified in the spring during Passover. He lived 33 and a half years. His ministry was three three and a half years. Three and a half years prior to would be in the fall he lived 33 and a half years he was crucified in the spring so we know that detail 33 and a half years you go back three and a half years his ministry started in the fall Feast of tabernacles okay 30 years prior to because if you take 33 if you take three and a half off 33 and a half you're left with 30. if the fall Is three and a half years past after he died in the spring, then Jesus was 30 years prior, would have been in the fall. Six months, a half year between Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, Jesus was born in the fall. We know that. Why? Because he lived through it 33 and a half years, he only had a three and a half year ministry. And we know that he was crucified in the spring. And so we just did the simple math. He was died, he he crucified in the fall. The Feast of Tabernacles. There's all these feasts. God didn't do nothing for nothing. The whole reason why they were in in Jerusalem at the time, crying Hosanna and everything, it was during the Feast of Tabernacles. These feasts, especially this one, was a feast that lasted all week. Okay? And these feasts were Sabbath days, and I can go into a lot of detail how Jesus was not crucified on Friday. There's no way he was crucified on Friday when it was on Sunday. He was buried for three days. There's not three days between Friday and Sunday. It doesn't work. I believe He was, buried, he was crucified on Wednesday. Okay? I'm not going to go into all that detail. We're not talking about Easter right now we're talking about Christmas, okay? The birth of Jesus. Awasi sheep, real quick. Awasi sheep are found in Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Cyprus, and Israel. They breed in the spring and give birth in the fall. Jesus was found in the manger in the fall. We know that. We can do simple math. Okay? But let's look at this word tabernacle real quick. Again, in Young's Little Translation. In Exodus 29, God says, I have tabernacled in the midst of the sons of Israel and I have become their God. In Leviticus chapter 23, it says, And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and saying, The 15th day of the seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles. <coughs> For seven days unto the Lord. We say a lot about Passover, we don't say a lot about feast of tabernacles. I believe Jesus was born during the feast of of tabernacles, okay? Why? Because first of all, he says, "And you shall observe the feast of weeks, which is also part of the feast of tab- the first was of, of wheat harvest, and the feast of and gathering at, at the year's end. At the year's end, that's the feast of tabernacles, okay? It's also called the feast of and gathering." John says it this way, and the Word became flesh and did from young to old did tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, and glory of the one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. I believe because tabernacle. And I can go a lot of detail with this, but he tabernacled among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Had, Feast of Tabernacles was in the fall. By simple math, we can see that Jesus was born in the fall. I don't have a problem with December twenty fifth. I celebrate Christmas all day, 365 days a year. But if I want to be concise and precise, I believe he was born in the fall. Okay? I don't know all the reasons why Easter keeps changing dates every year. We never know what day Easter falls on. We always know what day Christmas falls on. But we do know that the Feast of Tabernacles is always six months after Passover. And so he was born in the fall. And it fits. It fits when sheep were born. It fits the story. It fits everything. But now I want to switch gears in and, and, and the last few minutes I have left and talk about the main reason for my message. With everything I shared about priests, about Mary and Joseph, the star, Miguel Adder, all these different names, with all that in the back of our minds, I now want to share what I really want to share this morning in this Christmas message. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 9. For I love this. For unto us, unto who, us, who's us, you and me, us. This child, unto us, a child is born. This Jesus was born to us. Unto who, us, a son is given. Jesus. Is born to us. Jesus is given to us. And the government will be upon his shoulder. The government is not upon America's shoulders. It's not upon uh, Pakistan's shoulders or any country that you're coming from. The government will be upon his shoulder. Whose shoulders? This child. This son who has been born and given to us. That's powerful. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We saw that Prince of Peace in talking about the star. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to, uh, to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, And even forever, the zeal of the Lord and the will perform this. I want to take this child who was born to us, given to us, with the increase of his government and peace shall be no end. And I want to tie that into our Christmas story, because it is our Christmas story. Going back to Luke, where we started this morning, chapter 2, and now there was in the same country shepherds. When I understand everything we just talked about, shepherds Miguel Ether, I understand this in a whole new light. Shepherds living out in the—they were living there, in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord stood around them, shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Verse ten. Then the angel said to them, "Do not be afraid." For behold, I bring you great tidings, or glad tidings, of great joy, which is, will be to all people. The title of my message this morning is Glad Tidings of Great Joy. Understanding everything that we just talked about this morning. Miguel Adder, this child being born in a very precise location, in the manger, in the tower of the hall. When these Magi, even Hebrews who were exiled, saw the star, read the scriptures, that this child should be born in Israel, in Bethlehem, in Miguel Edor, in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, I can't even pronounce it right. From Micah chapter 5 verse 2. God is even bringing the exiled Jews back. To see this child that Daniel prophesied, that Micah prophesied, that many have prophesied, would come. This child born to us. This child given to us was born. This is good tidings, glad tidings of great joy. And this glad tidings of great joy is for all people. Christmas begins with Christ. And Jesus is the glad tidings of great joy. Who's to all people. And he's born in a very specific manger. But there is born to you. This child is given to you today. This child <coughs> is born to you this day. In the city of David. Bethlehem. Miguel Adder. A savior. is Christ the Lord and this will be the sign this is the sign that you will find a babe a lamb wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in the manger Jesus was born he was given to us to die he came to die he didn't come to live he didn't come to do miracles he did that that's all part of the package he came to die and any lamb that was born in this manger was destined to be sacrificed for all people. And Jesus was not just born anywhere. Jesus was born specifically in this manger, in Miguel Adder. He was destined to be sacrificed for all people. This is glad tidings, but good joy. He was born where he was destined. His whole life ministry was to be the Passover lamb. He is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was born in, as He was born precisely in the manger. It doesn't just make a nice, beautiful nativity scene. It, Jesus was born <coughs> where God promised He would be born. He promised. If you understand the scripture, He told us over and over and over. He's in the star. Two exiled Jews to come and find this child. Two priestly shepherds. I mean, they were just, they were birthing lambs destined for sacrifice. Well, Jesus came destined for sacrifice into a manger. And these were the glad tidings of great joy that is for all people. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. I just love that. We only have one scripture where all heaven shows up to sing. I mean, that must have been the sight, the seed. I mean, it's dark, pitch black, dark, heavy night, all you have is you and the sheep. And all of a sudden, every angel, the multitude, of heavenly else stood where Jesus was born. I mean, these, these priestly shepherds, they were doing what they were supposed to do. And all of a sudden, God shows up. Not just in the manger, not, that, that is Jesus, who is God, the Son of God, the Son of Man. But all the angels show up, pronouncing this glad tidings of great joy. Saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and good will towards men," they were not pronouncing damnation or condemnation or judgment. They were pronouncing, "Jesus is here. The child has come. Glad tidings, of great joy." Going back to our key verse, and the angel said to them, "Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you glad tidings, great tidings of great joy." You know, I don't know all the scriptures where this phrase, glad tidings of great joy, appear. But I can show you three. As I conclude this message this morning, I want to, this is the main message I want to share right now. I shared everything I shared this morning to share this. But this phrase, glad tidings, shows up in three of my most favorite scriptures that I have. The first one is Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Please listen. How beautiful. Upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Folks, just like the angels Bring glad tidings of great joy as to all people. Our job as a church, our job as able ministers is to bring good news, to proclaim peace, and bring glad tidings of great joy to Zion, Zion, to all people everywhere. We are supposed to do what the angels did that Christmas morn. And we are supposed to bring to all people, because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government is on his shoulders. We are supposed to be doing what the angels did, they did it first, but we do it now. Bring glad tidings to the world Jesus is here. There's another place where we see this scripture Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and open the prison of those who are bound, to proclaim the supple year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to cover all who mourn, to console those who mourn and in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Sorry, my thing messed up here. Okay, it's not going to do it the easy way, so we're going to have to scroll through all my messages real quick. Sorry about this. I have to, I'm mm-hmm. bit, slide 20, I need to get to slide 97, so. <laughs> I thought I could go shortcut here, but uh, I'm, my computer's been acting up all morning. Again, we're supposed to preach good tidings. What are the good tidings we're supposed to preach? We're supposed to to pour, to pour to. We are supposed to heal the brokenhearted. Why? Because the message of Jesus is here. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed us to bring his glad tidings, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, peace, goodwill toward man to the captives, and open the prison of those who are found. We are supposed to proclaim the, the supple year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our What is the day of vengeance our God? The cross! The cross is where Jesus took vengeance on sin and crucified it. To cover all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. We're supposed to be glad tidings. Are people mourning today? We have glad tidings, to give them beauty of seven ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness. We I just preached on the last eight weeks the praise of the Lord that he may be glorified. And then one more picture, scripture, where we see this glad tidings. Romans chapter 10. How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Verse 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Our job, church. Jesus came, yes, we celebrate his birth. He came to die. And he died. He came to be buried. And he's like, that manger looks like a tomb. He came to die. That manger looks like almost a tomb that he was buried in. He came to rise again. He came to sit at the right hand of God. Because the word became flesh. Well, the word does not return to him void. The word returned back to the Father, not void but completing why I came. And now his word, his spirit is in us. His spirit has anointed us to bring glad tidings of great joy. How will the world hear, not be saved if they don't hear the message? How will the world be born again if they don't hear the message? But we, and how will we preach unless we are sent? We are sent. We have been commissioned to go make disciples. Of all nations. For it is written, How beautiful are the feet of Him. Now, he he only quotes half part of the verse. Paul didn't quote the whole verse of Isaiah 52 7, which we just read. But he does quote this part, How beautiful are the feet of Him who preach the gospel. And he does quote this part, Who bring glad tidings of good things. Jesus is here. We have Jesus, praise God. But we don't have Jesus just so we can go gloat. We have Jesus so we can go bring glad tidings of good things. to say to the world, unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. And the government is on his shoulders. We have, and we have been commissioned to preach glad tidings of good. This is awesome. I share a lot to share a little. And this little that I shared in the end. All the great things about the priests and the shepherds, Miguel and the, the town of the flock, the star, the wise men, all the scripture testifies of Jesus. I want to end this. This is our Christmas message, but this is also our New Year's message. Because this week we're going to be celebrating a new year. I know the last two years have been horrible around the world with COVID and everything. But let me say this again from Psalm 65 verse 11. You crown the year with your goodness. And your paths drip with abundance. You crown the year with your goodness. And your paths drip with abundance. I say this every year, but it's good for every year. Because his mercies are new every morning. God wants to crown this year 2022 with his goodness. What's a crown? A crown is what's put on the king's head when he's inaugurated to be king. And God has inaugurated your year to be good with his goodness. And your paths drip. Now, I say this, that all sounds good, and this might sound negative, but I'm going to be starting a new message next week. I thought it would only be one week, but I'm probably going to be a three-week message. It's a shorter series than my normal series. I have a lot of great messages already stored up for this next year, but I'm going to start off with this message called The Symptoms of a Heart Heart. Now, that sounds depressing to some, some people when they hear that. But I want to come and soften your heart so you can receive from God. We're going to see that. The hard heart doesn't necessarily mean that we're in great sin. sin. Of course, anything that's not a faith is sin. Knowing to do good and we don't do it is sin. I'm not focusing on that, on this particular message. What I'm focusing on, G- we're going to see next week, Jesus told his disciples they had a hard heart. And we'll see next week the reason people have a hard heart is because they're not expecting the miraculous. When we are not expecting the miraculous, when, when our hearts are dominated by the natural and not dominated by the supernatural, we're going to find our hearts are hard. Week 2, on this next we're going to be talking about how drunk same title, but some of us, we are so intoxicated with the problems of this world. We're so intoxicated with our own problems. We are so intoxicated about what people have done to us and the wrong they have done to us. I know Sherry and I, Sherry and I went through some horrible things in, in, in the last few years where people just, they did us wrong big time. And it hardened our hearts to receive from God. We have received from God, but we've only received so much. God wants to crown your year with goodness. This child has been born. This son has been given to us to bring not only the world glad tidings of good joy, but God wants to bring you glad tidings of great joy. God wants to revive your heart. So it's not hard, but it's soft to receive of his goodness. God wants to give you good, but if your heart's hard, he, he will bring it to you, but you won't receive it because you will be so focused, you'll be so in a, you'll be in such a drunken stupor over your problems, over what's going on in the world. Jesus said it this way many hearts will wax cold of the things coming along the earth. If you if your heart is waxing cold, it's hard. It's cold. it's stone. But God wants you to expect the man. You know, Jesus told this, and we'll find this next week. Jesus told his disciples their hearts were hard after he just fed the five thousand. Most of us think if we saw a great miracle, our hearts would not be hard. But disciples, it was different. These disciples, who had an experience with Jesus, you and I have never had. They spent time with Jesus face to face for three and a half years. During Jesus' there's nobody who knew Jesus more intimately. And the earthly, the earthly ministry, and the disciples, and disciples who saw miracle after miracle after miracle, their hearts were hard to expect the miraculous. Jesus is not. I don't say this to hurt you. I don't say this to harm you any more than Jesus said this to His own disciples to offend them. He said this so He they could soften their hearts. Did their hearts ever become soft? Well. The apostles wrote the whole New Testament. The apostles turned, were known to have turned the world upside down with Jesus. The apostles were there at Pentecost when thousands were being saved daily. I want to say that the, the disciples were, Jesus commissioned the 12, Jesus commissioned the 70, and they saw people healed. They saw the dead being raised. They saw demons coming out of people. I want to say that their hearts were softened. But there are times when their hearts became hardened. And even the, even the best of us, even the disciples, could have their hearts hardened. So even the best of us can have hard hearts. So that's not a put down. But if we don't understand the symptoms, we can't deal with it. But we need to deal with it. If we want to receive all that God has for us in this day. If we want to receive all the glad tidings and good joy he has for us now, this day, so that we can do exploits in his name till he comes again, then we need to pay attention and allow Jesus to soften our hearts to receive all that he has for us. Some of us need to just become sober. We need to be... You know, I started saying this. I thought it was going to be a one-week lesson. It's going to be at least a three-week lesson now because there's a lot that Peter... Uh, the the apostles talk about how we need to be sober-minded. It's our minds that have become hard, and our hearts become hard. But if they can become Jesus, we're going to find out this message that we can be hard. Instead of our hearts being hard towards God, our hearts can be hard towards the devil, and we can, we're so hard that we're not going to receive from the devil, we're going to receive only from God. And I want to take what was Been bad and turn it around for good. The same attitude that we can be hard, our hearts can be hard towards God and not receive from him. Our hearts can be hard towards the devil and not receive from him and receive from God. That's awesome. That's good news. So stay tuned for me. This is going to be a good year. I don't care. See, I don't care what's going on in the world. I do. I care, but I don't care. Because the world represents people. So I do care what's going on with people. But I do not have to be affected where it hardens my heart towards what God wants to do in my life and through my life. We're going to to see that one. Anyway, we're going to see more next week. Anyway, God bless you guys. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we'll see you in 2022 again. God bless you.